please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And I'd, I'd planned on looking at chapters 7 and 8 this morning. Uh, we're going to, to do it a little bit differently. We're going to, as I was reading chapter 8 and kind of thinking about some stuff there, uh, thought, you know, I think we need to cover some stuff in chapter 8 uh, next week. And so we're going to be talking about uh, chapter 8 next week. And you know, there's some th- things just on the nature of spiritual leadership and uh, just where the evangelical church is right now, I think there's some, some helpful things for us to talk about next week. So we're going we're to just look at chapter 7 this week, and we're going to hold off and uh, look, at, uh, look at that later. But 1 Samuel chapter 7, we're talking about spiritual reformation and what the marks of a true spiritual reformation are. Remember, we looked at the first couple of verses of chapter 7 last week as the Ark of the Covenant returns to Israel. And so we're going to continue uh, looking at that this morning as we see Samuel come back into the picture in his continued ministry uh, of word proclamation to the people of Israel. And so if you're able to, uh, just stand with me in honor of God as we look at his word. We're going to look at verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 7. Start there and then read the rest of the chapter. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. And so the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places, these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. You may be seated. May God encourage, strengthen your heart this morning through his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you as our our stone of help, uh, turning to you, trusting that you you have been faithful to us in the past, you will be present today and faithful, and you will be 
faithful in the future. We turn to you and trust in you through the work of your son, Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. So last week, we talked about the holiness of God and how the idea of of devotion to God is really what holiness is is getting at. And had some great conversations with many of you over the the last week. And just the idea that, that holiness is not just about being separate from sin. It's about being separated to God. And so we talked about that idea of devotion, holiness equaling devotion to God. Now, as a people are devoted to God, what's going to happen? There's going to be transformation among a a people who are devoted to God, who are devoted to holiness. There's going to be reformation, a church that's, that's committed to God and, and is deciding to govern its life according to devotion to God, in that church, reformation is going to take place among a people who are devoted to God. And, and maybe you're like me, and, and you're sad as you think about the state of the church in North America. You do a lot of research, and you don't have to research very long to, to find that the church is in a very sad state. I was reading some Barna reports this, this past week, and it said that less than half of those who would call themselves born-again Christians believe that God would desire them to be holy, that God calls them to be holy. So less than half of Christians would think that God has called them to live a holy life. It's not just people who call themselves born-again Christians. According to some research of, of pastors, less than half of pastors had a biblical worldview of sin and holiness. And so if People don't believe that God desires them to be holy. If if pastors aren't proclaiming what God's word says about sin and the need to be separate from it and wholly devoted to God, it's no surprise that the the life of people within the church reflects that. And again, you look at research and it shows that very often the lives of believers look very similar to the lives of those who are unbelievers, or at least the lives of those who would claim to be believers looks very similar to the lives of those who would not make any such claim. That's sad. It's tragic. For the glory of the name of Christ, the church needs reformation. It needs people who are committed to living holy lives and want to see that lived out in their life, in the life of their family, in the life of their church, and if God is gracious, in the life of their community. And I hope all of us would say, yeah, that's, that's what I desire. I, I want to see Christ's church revived and, and reformed. All of us would say we want that, and, and we want to have heart change among the people of God that results in deeper love and devotion toward God, and that leads to hatred and repulsion of sin and, a, 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 and, and seeing that lived out in our lives. And he, here's what I want us to see as we, we think about that being our desire. Here's what I want us to see as kind of our main idea this morning as we look at this text. True spiritual reformation breaks out among God's people only when he grants genuine repentance resulting in devoted worship. 
So the, the spiritual reformation that I would hope all of us would say, yeah, that's what I want. I want to see my life looking more like the life that God says I need to live. I, I want this, this church to, to be reformed. And as, as we look at what we do and, and how we talk and, and our, as we look at our families and we look at us, our lives as singles and as, as we look at all these, these aspects of our life, we want to be, be conformed more and more to the image of Christ and, and then reformation taking place. I, I hope that we'd all say that we desire that. And, and as it happens, how can that happen? It's not something we can manufacture. It's not something that we can just uh, create in and of ourselves. That's only going to break out among God's people when he grants it, when he grants repentance that leads to devote, more devoted worship, a greater passion for him, greater holiness. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage in which Reformation takes place. We've, we've been in 1 Samuel, and we've seen over and over again examples of false worship by the people. As we look here at chapter 7, we're going to see genuine spiritual Reformation take place, and we're going to see five marks of spiritual Reformation. And these are things that we want to be praying for. These are things we want to be looking for if there's going to be genuine Reformation in our church, in our community. And these are things that we want to pursue by God's enabling grace. So here's the first mark of genuine spiritual reformation. Number one, faithful preaching. Number one, faithful preaching. Look at the text with me, if you would. In fact, keep your finger there in chapter 7 and, and turn back to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we see the call of Samuel, don't we? Remember that? And as Samuel is, is called by the Lord, we come to the end of chapter 3, and it says in verse 19, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now, these aren't just words that Samuel is, is making up. These, these are God's words, and so God is enabling Samuel to speak the truth. He goes on, the writer of Samuel goes on, and in verse 20 it says, And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, knew that Samuel was established as a, a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then you go to chapter 4, verse 1, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And so what is Samuel doing? Samuel is established as a prophet, as someone who has the words of God. And he's, he's proclaiming God's truth to the people of Israel. And, and all the words that Samuel says, God is establishing because ultimately they're his words. Samuel is a faithful proclaimer of God's word. Now, we're in chapter 7. And have you noticed something over the last few weeks we've been in Samuel? Remember, I, I said this first section of Samuel is, is, is uh, the first eight chapters. We're talking about how Israel longs for a king like the nations, and Samuel's kind of the main guy in this section that I want us to think about. Have, have you noticed something over the last few sermons? Who's been gone? Samuel, right? We, we haven't seen Samuel since chapter 4, verse 1. He's, he's gone most of chapter 4. He's gone all of chapter 5, gone all of chapter 6, and now he shows up again in chapter 7. What's this guy been up to? It's, it's not a coincidence that Samuel has been absent from the narrative. Why has Samuel been absent from the narrative? Because the people aren't interested in hearing what God has to say, are they? The worship of the people of Israel has been marked by God's absence, the glory of God has departed. 
They, they don't want to encounter the glory of God, and so they have no desire to hear what Samuel has to say. And, and now, though, you come to chapter 7, look at verse 2. It says, 20 years go by, this is the end of verse 2, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That, that word lamented means sorrowful groaning. There's a desire to be restored to relationship with God. And Samuel, who has been known as a prophet of the Lord and who has apparently been laboring with a very seemingly fruitless ministry for 20 years, is now finally looked to again. Samuel has been regula- re- uh, regulated to the side for decades. And now, as the people lament, as they, they have a, a true sorrowful groaning, they're going to come back to him. Now, what's going to take place? This isn't in this chapter. We're going to see, well, part of it's in this chapter. Samuel's going to proclaim God's word again. He's going to continue to do that. And then as you go through First Samuel, you're going, to, you're going to see him continue to proclaim the, the truths of God's word to all the people and, and to Saul in particular. There's something else about Samuel's ministry that I want you to notice and, and, and think about as you think about his faithful preaching. Samuel is not just about saying, here's what God says to do. Samuel genuinely loves the people that he's proclaiming God's word to. And in fact, remember, whenever later you're going to see, whenever uh, Saul is, is rejected by the Lord, how does Samuel respond? There, there's grief that he feels because he truly loves Saul, and there's, there's sorrow in his heart. We also see that Samuel's ministry is marked by prayer. He doesn't just say, here's what God says to do. He engages in prayer for the people that he's proclaiming the word to. We see that throughout this chapter. We see it in chapter 12. We'll talk about it more where the people come to Samuel and they pray for us. And Samuel says, of course I'm praying for you. Samuel is a faithful proclaimer of God's word. And as this reformation takes place, people are turning to God's word again. All true biblical reformation of of the church is founded upon faithful proclaiming of God's word. You you show me a time in church history where there's been a a revival and a a reformation of the church, either in a community, among a a body of believers, in a, a larger region. You show me that time, and I'll show you a time when the church has been passionate about God's word and his truth again. For example, you think about John Chrysostom, he was the bishop of Constantinople. He's made the bishop, I think, in uh, 398 A.D. And uh, Constantinople had heard about his ministry. And they said, man, this guy is a great preacher. We want him. And so they, they literally, like, kidnapped him from his ministry and brought him to Constantinople and forced him to be their, their pastor. And uh, they soon regretted it <laughs> because Christostom told it like it is, right? He was an offense to the excessive materialism, the, the debauchery of this imperial world. And, and he said, look, the church is sick. And just like when a body is sick, there's things you do to a sick body. You, you uh, treat it this way and you give it rest and you allow it to, to you change the diet and you change the climate. And these are things you do to a physical body that's sick. He says, look, the church is sick. But what do you do when, it, when the, the body of Christ is sick? He says, there's only one means and one way of cure that has been given us, and that is the teaching of the Word. 
This is the best instrument, Chrysostom said, the, the best diet, the best climate. This serves, whether it be, and, and tells us whether it be needful to burn or to amputate, this one method must be used, must be used and without it, nothing else will avail. Many of us are sad as we think about the state of the church. Many of us are, are sad when we see people whom we love leaving the faith deserting the church. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, I get all sorts of suggestions about how we can improve the church to allow more people to, to stay in it. And I'll tell you, most of the suggestions that people have for how to improve the church aren't to make the church more holy. They're to make the church often more like the world. But what does God say the solution is? What does God say to, to Timothy through the Apostle Paul, as, as Timothy is, is told about the, the way in which the world is going in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you come to chapter 4, and Paul says this, so here's what you, in light of the false teachers, in light of people being disobedient to parents and rebellious, and, and in light of all the, the uh, sin that's going to take place, even among those who proclaim themselves followers of Christ, he says, Timothy, here's what you do, preach the word. I charge you the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The time is coming when men will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In the context of all that, Timothy, what do you do? Preach the word. Brothers and sisters, I would say to you, if you want reformation, if you want to see both within your, your own sphere and, and the, a broader sphere of, of Christendom, if you want reformation, what needs to take place is, is faithful preaching. In fact, here, here's what I would tell you. Patiently preach with, with prayer and without regard to the past. So kind of four things there. Patiently preach with prayer and without regard to the past. First of all, just, just patience. Paul tell, tells Timothy, be patient, right? How long has Samuel been preaching and proclaiming God's word from the establishment of his ministry, from the time that the, the ark is, is taken away until now? How long? It's been 20 years. He's patient. And what does he do? He preaches, and I mean preach here in, in very broad sense of proclaiming God's truth in the spheres that, in which God has placed you. If you want to see reformation, be patient, but also proclaim, preach, proclaim the truth of the gospel. Tell those that you love, look, here's, here's the reality. We are sinners. We're separated from God because of our sin, and yet God in his grace has provided us his son, Jesus Christ, and by placing our faith in him and in him alone, we can receive eternal life. He's the one who died on the cross for your sins, who paid the penalty for your sins. Trust in him. Patiently preach that. But not, not without prayer. Do it with prayer. Interceding for those that, that God would, would miraculously intervene in their lives. And, then, and do, do it also without regard to the past. What if, what if the people had come to Samuel and they said, Samuel, look, you're, what do we do? And Samuel says, look, have you guys read chapter 6 and 7, or 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel? I can't trust you. 
you don't, you're not really serious about following after the Lord. You guys are just a bunch of syncretists. You'll, you'll take Baal and Ashroth and Yahweh and mess them all together. I've tried. I'm done. No, it's patiently preach with prayer and without regard to the past. And there may be those in your life that you say, boy, I, I've tried so hard and it's been so long and, and, and what do I do? No, I, I'm, I'm confident not in this person. I'm not looking at their past but I'm looking at God and his power. Faithful preaching is going to accompany genuine reformation, genuine spiritual reformation. Here's the second mark of spiritual reformation that I want us to think about. Second mark is radical repentance. Radical repentance. Look at verses three and four. And as you look at three and four, what you're going to notice is there are several imperatives, several instructions that Samuel gives the people. Now, we have to be really careful here because it's so easy for us to think that repentance is some sort of work that we do. Uh, repentance is so closely connected to the fruit of repentance, we can sometimes say, okay, the fruit of repentance is repentance, and that's not the case. Repentance is what? Repentance is, our, is a turning away from sin. It's, it's the other side of the coin of faith. As I place my faith in, in God, as I place my faith in Christ, that's one side of the coin. But to do that, I must also be simultaneously turning from sin. So repentance is something that takes place within the heart. But if repentance is genuine, if repentance is radical, even though it's taking place within the heart, it is impossible for that to take place in the heart without it being manifested in our actions. And that's what Samuel gets at here. Notice the three kind of instructions that he gives them here. First of all, he says, if. So if this is true, if it's true that you're returning, that word is shuv. It means, again, repentance, to turn back, to come back to. If, it's, if that's what's happening in your heart, he says, then here are the things that I want to see. And he gives these three imperatives. Number one, put away. Put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you. Turn your hearts from that, in that. No longer have a relationship with that sin. Be, be removed from it. Make no more space in your heart for it. Baal and Ashtaroth were the, the uh, male and female deities of this, this region. And so what the Israelites had done is they had engaged in worship of these deities while keeping the name Yahweh on their lips as well. And they engaged in this, this sexual immorality that's part of the worship, and they still profess the name Yahweh. And, and uh, Samuel's saying, look, you've got, you got to put that away. You can no longer have a place in your heart for that. And then secondly, he says, direct your heart to the Lord. Don't, don't continue to imagine a world in which your sin and your worship of God coexist. And he says, the final instruction, so put away, direct, serve. Serve God only. There is only one God. That must be the the foundation of your life, the starting reference point for all other reality. I'm, I'm going to serve the Lord with my life. So if, if your repentance is genuine, if it's truly the radical repentance that's going to accompany spiritual reformation that you say you desire, then these things, I need to see these things. I need to see you turning away from these idols. I need to see you directing your hearts to the Lord. I need to see you serving God only. And what do the people do? Look at the text. It says, Verse 4, they did it. The people of Israel put away the Baals, they put away the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. It's a beautiful thing. 
This is radical repentance. It's what we call, what we see here them doing is, is what we call radical amputation. I was first kind of exposed to that idea by uh, Joel Smith at Bethany Baptist Church when he was kind of talking about some, some things on counseling and what we needed to be willing to do. It's based on Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's, it's better that you lose your, uh, one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. And of course, Jesus isn't advocating literally doing those things, but he's saying, look, as you are aware of sin, you need to be willing to do the radical things that are necessary. If your heart is truly changing, you need to have a willingness to do whatever radical things God might be calling you to do to remove yourself from it. This is what Samuel says he wants to see. Now, kids, uh, maybe you're a a young kid here this morning, and and you kind of know what this is like a little bit, right? You know what it's like when someone says they're sorry and they aren't really sorry, right? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe you're a, a young, young lady here, and you have a sister, and your sister has sometimes borrowed one of your uh, items of clothing, and, and uh, she did it without asking, even though it's been made very clear to her by you that you need to be asked before you borrow that shirt. And she borrowed the shirt, and she s- spilled soda on it, and she brought it back to you, and, and you, and you uh, let her know that that wasn't appropriate. Mom and dad heard you letting her know that it wasn't appropriate, and they, they got, and you got in trouble for her doing that. And you said, well, you know, this is what she did. And she looks at you and she goes, oh, I'm sorry. And you're like, look, I know. I know you're not really sorry, right? If you're really sorry, you would stop doing this, right? And mom and dad rightly say, look, you need to be gracious. You have a heart of forgiving. And you say, I know, I know, but I also know I'm pretty sure that she's not really sorry, right? It's true in life, right? I've been at youth conferences, and one time I was at a youth conference, and it was this very exciting conference, and it was, you know, uh, there was this time of worship, and and there was like all these kids singing, and and it was just this, it was just this, this fervent time of everyone, you know, swaying their hands and stuff, and I was talking with this, with the youth pastor later, and and uh, I said, you know, I just makes me uneasy because I, I, I'm seeing emotion, but I'm not really seeing any change. Now, God, God alone can look at the heart, right? God alone can tell whether or not your sister is really sorry about borrowing your shirt without asking. Only the Lord knows if a, a person who's waving their arms and is very excited and then the next day doesn't really reflect what a life of a person who's worshiping God should look like. Only God knows the, the state of that person's heart. But just as we look at ourselves, what can we say? There is more to repentance than emotion. If you want an emotional experience, there are, there are ways to provide that. Like I've got some really great movies, very emotional, right? Or even, even good emotion, like uh, you know, in a worship service. There's, there's a lot of emotions that we can feel, and, and, and good emotions, right? But here's what I would say. If the fruit of radical repentance does not accompany your emotion, it is not a mark of true spiritual 
Reformation. If we can't look and see examples of, of radical repentance in our lives, we cannot fool ourselves into believing that Reformation is taking place within our hearts or perhaps even within our, our church. Now look, you all know I am against legalism, right? I mean, I'm not. Daniel is against legalism. Legalism is this idea, thank you, someone's not. Uh, legalism is this idea that I can do these things, and, and, and when I do these things, God will, God will uh, find me acceptable. So I do these things so that God will find me acceptable. That's, that is anti-gospel. That's, that's, that's uh, legalism, and we are absolutely against legalism, right? And, and I do not want my preaching to foster legalism, right? I, I don't want me to talk about holiness and radical repentance and all of a sudden everyone's walking around with rulers to check the, how short people's shorts are and looking at your Spotify list and saying, oh, this guy's listening to classic rock, I don't know. And, you know I don't, we don't want any of that, okay? We don't want that. But let me say this. We also don't want to be a church that perverts God's grace and somehow believes that God's grace means we can be less holy instead of more holy. God protect us from that heresy as well. The belief that God's grace means I can be less holy instead of more holy. And I, and I, have, to, I have to admit, you know, I, holiness of life, the, the idea that Holiness of life is legalism is, is surprising that, that Christians think that, right? Holiness of life is not legalism. And I, I, I'm surprised at what contemporary evangelicals allow to exist within their cultures. We don't, we don't blush at some of the things that we talk about with one another. To talk about the things that entertain us, the sinful habits we engage in, the attitudes we allow to, to lodge within our hearts, that, those are not things that are holy. And changing those things will not be what earns God's acceptance, but as we have God's acceptance through faith in Jesus Christ, things should change. Sadly, here's, here's the idea of radical repentance, what we see here. Sadly, some of us are under this delusion. We see some sin in our lives, and we believe we just need to kind of change the, the terms of the contract we have with sin. We recognize sin has gotten a little too powerful here, and so what I need to do is we need to renegotiate the truce that we have with sin. So let's, let's change the terms of relationship sin, but the idea of contemplating a future without that sin is, is foreign to us. Or the idea that God would want us to do some radical things to completely remove the bales and the rashroths from among us as we serve God alone. Brothers and sisters, what I desire for our church, for, let me, and starting with me, what I would desire is a world in which I am completely devoted to Christ, where I'm putting away my sins and where I'm putting away my, my false gods in such a way that there's no way for me to continue to worship them. What I'm saying here is that I, I stop imagining a world where I can reach this truce with sin and, and repentance. Repentance is not feeling bad about the past. Repentance is contemplating a future and envision that future without sin at all. So, for example, let's say that you're, you're a woman and you're in a marriage 
and, and you are not happy in that marriage. And you've been contemplating ways to, to leave your husband and, and how you can get away with that in, in a way that, that would still kind of allow you some cover and, and you're, trying to, you're harboring those attitudes in, in your heart while at the same time trying to worship God. And you're like, I, I can't do this. I need to be less hateful toward him. So it's not just being sad about the past. It's saying, okay, I'm going to do some things radically different now. I want, by God's grace, I'm going to put away these, these wrong thought, hearts, attitudes, bitterness toward him, and I'm not going to even contemplate a future in which I can still be bitter toward him. Or maybe you're a, a young person and, and you've been uh, trapped by pornography and, and you say, okay, I, I feel really bad about the past, but that's not, that's not all that is entailed in the fruit of repentance. Not only am I going to just feel bad about the past, because this repentance is genuine, I'm going to do some radical things now so I can no longer contemplate a future in which this continues to, take, to, to have a place in my heart. There's no longer any place in my heart for this, this sin of pornography. It's not that I'm just going to try to do less sin. I, I want it completely removed from my life by God's grace. In the past, I've been selfish with my finances. I'm not going to just try to do less of that now. I'm going to say, look, I, I no longer want this God of materialism to have any place in my heart. I'm going to put it away and serve God only. That's what we're talking about here. Genuine repentance. Now you say, are you saying I have to be perfect? Genuine repentance doesn't mean perfection in this life. Genuine repentance comes by God's grace as we draw closer to him. But beloved brothers and sisters, let's, let's encourage us to, to, by God's grace, strive to no longer live contentedly side by side with our sin in some sort of managed truce. Reformation is always marked by radical repentance. Yes, the sin is here. Yes, there is still a draw in my heart toward it. No, I will refuse to quit the war with it. We are determined enemies. It has no place here, and I will fight it until my last breath. That's radical repentance. Let's look at another mark of, of spiritual reformation here, devoted worship. Oh, this is so beautiful, isn't it, here in verses 5 through 9. As we, we think about the, the hard things that have happened in chapters 5 and 6, now we come into chapter 7. And remember in, in chapter 5, the people looked at the, the Ark of the Covenant and, and their, the presence of God among them is some sort of trinket. So we don't have to really uh, change. We can just have this Ark of the Covenant show up and, and do our work for us. And in chapter 6, whenever we're confronted with the holiness of God, what do, what do we want to do? We just kind of want to separate ourselves from it. Now, genuine worship takes place, what we've been waiting for, for chapters. Hebrews, and, and this, is, this is a beautiful thing, and it's interesting, right, that, and, and necessary that devoted worship has to follow radical repentance. Hebrews tells us to remove the sin that so easily entangles us. And so often, we fool ourselves into believing that our life is going to be worse after we get rid of sin, after we turn from it. Maybe you've had a, an, an argument with your wife and, and you know that you were in the wrong and you, you were surprised you couldn't see it at the time, but, but now it's, it's very evident. I was in the wrong here and I know I need to deal with that. But oh, it's going to be a pain. 
I'm going to have to say I'm sorry, and I'm going to have to admit that I was wrong when I said this. Oh, and I said this. Oh, I forgot I said that. And I, I, it just seems like it's going to be so miserable once I, once I do what I need to do. Or maybe there's been something that you've wronged a friend, and your friend doesn't even know that you've wronged her, and you're going to have to go to her and say, look, okay, uh, I lied to you. I lied about this, and I didn't. And then after I lied about this, I, I had to keep the lie going. And, I, I don't, and you just think, boy, that's going to be so bad once I do that. And then, and then what happens? You do what God has told you to do, and, and, and now and that, that relationship, the most important relationship with God that has been hindered by your refusal to turn from that, now, it's, now you're able to have that relationship restored, and all, nothing else matters compared to that. It's like you, you walk outside after confessing sin to someone, and like, the sun is like four times brighter. Imagine that this summer. It's hard to imagine it right now, but imagine a sun even brighter, right? That's what is able to take place as, as radical repentance takes place. There's able to be more devoted worship, the worship marked by holiness. And so uh, Samuel gathers everyone together at Mizpah. This is a place north of Jerusalem along this important route. We're going to see Israel continue to assemble there. They did in the book of Judges. We're going to see it whenever Saul's proclaimed king. And they engage in these acts of worship. They draw water. They pour it out to the Lord there in, uh, as, they, as they engage in this, this worship. Verse 6 says they, we're not exactly sure what that is talking about. Perhaps it's, it's talking about how instead of relying upon the bales for the, their physical sustenance, now they're saying, look, we're, we're relying upon you, Yahweh, the true God. It says they fasted. We're going to talk more about fasting in the, the coming weeks. But this is a time where they say, okay, we're, we're abstaining from food. And just as our bodies long for food, as, as our bodies long for food, we're, we're reminding ourselves how much we long for you, God, in your deliverance. And so that's what is taking, again, fasting isn't something that they do in order to earn God's approval, but to, to, to train their hearts to long after him more. And they, they, they confess that they've sinned against him. There's a time, time of confession. In other words, this is true worship. It's true worship. They're praying to the Lord through Samuel, mediating for them. This is what we've been talking about over the past few sermons in Samuel. There's a contemplation of who God is and then a response of their whole being, devoted worship. Let me just caution you. There's often a counterfeit reformation among God's people, right? What is counterfeit ref- reformation? If, if genuine re- reformation is being more devoted to God and, and genuine worship, counterfeit reformation is whenever we, we start to change some things, but as we start to change these things, we become more and more devoted to self. The fruit of counterfeit reformation is more self-worship. I was reading this this past week, uh, maybe an article some of you saw as well, on, on Karl Barth. Karl Barth was a theologian in the 20th century who was trying to engage in reformation of the church and save the church, he said, from liberalism. But some of his theology was just so counter to what he said he was trying to accomplish. And in recent years, we've learned more about his personal life. And this article was talking about some, some letters we found between him and his personal assistant, a, a woman with whom he was having an affair. And l- listen to what he said to this woman about the affair that they were having and how this affair the reason I mention this is not just to, to trash this guy, but to talk about how his, his lack of repentance influenced his worship. Here's what he said. 
He said, a strange consequence of our experience, he didn't say adultery, our experience, will be that my seminar that I teach this summer about theology will turn out to be much more lenient, merciful, cautious than would have been, than would have been the case otherwise. In other words, I was going to say this based upon God's word, but now I'm looking at my experience. I don't want to turn from my experience in repentance, so I'm changing what I believe. Then he goes on. He says, it cannot be just the, the devil's work, what we're doing. It, it must have some meaning and a right to live. And I, I, I love you, and I don't see any chance to stop this. And the fruit, of course, is the theology he worked out based upon that starting point. Brothers and sisters, that's counterfeit worship. It's counterfeit reformation. It's not devoted worship saying, look, only God. Whatever God says to do, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn from the things that he says not to do and worship him alone. True, spiritual, lasting reformation must begin with this, faithful preaching. As there's faithful preaching, there will be radical repentance. And then as there's radical repentance, the fetters that, that hold us back are removed and we can engage in genuine devoted worship. A fourth characteristic that I want to touch on here is miraculous deliverance. There's miraculous deliverance when there's genuine spiritual reformation. In the text, there's a story of, of physical deliverance. The, in fact, it's interesting, right? You, you look here at chapter 7, you flip back to chapter 4, and in chapter 4, what happens to the Israelites? They, they don't engage in genuine repentance. There's not true worship, and they're defeated. They're defeated at Ebenezer uh, twice. They're defeated by the Philistines there in chapter 4, verse 2. 4,000 are, are killed, and, and then they, they fight again in verse 10. It says, and Israel is defeated, and they, they fled every man to his home, and there's a very great slaughter. So lack of worship, and there is lack of true repentance, and so there's defeat. Now, now, finally, the people aren't seeing God as some sort of token that they can wave around and force that God to do what they want him to do. Now they're engaged in true worship, and now there is miraculous deliverance. It says they drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord, God, Yahweh, thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them to confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And who defeated them? Yahweh, the Lord, not the people. Physical deliverance of God's people is a picture of spiritual deliverance, of miraculous, divine salvation from our sin. This is what happens to us in, in times of reformation. We're trapped in sin, and, and then God in his grace intervenes. He delivers, and he continues to do so. We, we think about the, the testimonies we hear publicly in times of baptism, and just the, the stories of God divinely intervening and allowing a person to place their faith in Jesus Christ, and then intervening in a way that only God can, and bringing about victory over sin. had more to say. That may also say more in, in future weeks. But here's the last thing I want to talk about. It's the idea of another mark of reformation is the idea of continual reformation. It, it doesn't just stop. We don't, this side of eternity, say, okay, you know what? I have, I've repented and I've, I've worshiped and now I'm good to go. No, reformation is continual. Look at what, what Samuel does. He takes this stone and he, he sets it up in this, this place where is a, a major route, and he calls the name of the stone Ebenezer, the, the, the rock of help. 
And he says, till now the Lord has helped us. And that means to this point of, of time, God has helped us and he will, he will continue to do so. And what he's calling the people to do is to continue to look to that stone. And when they see that stone, they're going to say, okay, this is what God has done in the past. And I have confidence that what God has done in the past is what he's going to continue to do in the future. For those who are going to engage in true worship of God and who are going to, to be reformed, there needs to be this act of continual reformation, of continuing to look to God, to remember what he's done in the past, and believe that he's going to continue to refine us into the future. Samuel is, our media, is the mediator of the people here. Christ is the picture that Samuel is painting for the people. As they look at that rock, they're thinking and about God's future deliverance that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans chapter 8, who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is currently, right now, at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. We don't just place our faith in Christ and move on with our lives. We place our faith in Jesus Christ and then we continue to look to him as our rock. Remember the song we sang earlier? A come thou fount of every blessing written in the 1700s. And, and what does is, what is Robinson in that hymn write? He says, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Why is that so important? Well, think about the other words in that song. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now, I, I would imagine there are none of us in this room who are genuine believers who don't understand the truth of those words. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. I love God, and yet at the same time, I recognize the law of sin still exists within my heart. I'm not a slave to sin. There's been a miraculous deliverance from sin, but I, I still understand the benefits that sin can bring. My heart recognizes the, the, the temporary joy that could be had from sin, and so I say, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I, I love, and, and then what I do? Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. Here I look to the stone, to the rock, to the foundation of my life, Jesus Christ. And I say, right now, here I am, I'm standing, and the only, the only reason I'm standing right now is by the help of God. He has miraculously saved me from sin. He has brought me to this point, and I believe by God's grace I'm going to continue to look to Christ to sustain me to eternity. And what happens as I do that? There's continual repentance and reformation and transformation. I have not arrived where I need to. In the, I think it was 1600s, there was a phrase, semper reformata, it means always being reformed. And the full phrase, and some people have used it to say, oh, we should change our doctrine, and that's not what the statement was. It was ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, and according to the word of God, but I can't say that in Latin. I'm not even sure I said the, pronounced the last part right, but what it's saying is, to the reformed church, the church that's in Christ, we're always being reformed. God is always working his, his work of reformation within us, and then according to the word of God. The Reformation 
that needs to take place in our lives isn't caused by trying harder. It's not by taking our idols and saying, okay, boy, I've been worshiping these, these idols too much. I just need to get them under control. True reformation is only granted by God. The church is in a sad state. The word of God is abandoned in pulpits that the lives of many Christians are a little different from the lives of those who reject Christ. Our lives, as, as we're honest, aren't characterized by the devotion we want them to be. So what do we do? We turn to God. And we believe that true spiritual reformation breaks out among God's people as he grants genuine repentance resulting in devoted worship. And we come again to our Ebenezer to our Christ, trusting in him that he who has delivered us from sin in the past will do it today, do it this moment, and will continue to do it by his good grace into the future. Let's pray to him. Father, we turn to you this morning. And we confess our sin. We are not the church that you would desire us to be. We're not the dads, we're not the moms, we're not the, the children we need to be, we're not the, the young adults or the, the singles, we're not the, the leaders in our community, we're not the, the, the employees that we need to be. Father, we are so far from what you would desire us to be, and we confess that. But Father, we are also confident this morning that we are in your hand and that you love us. And that you who have delivered us in the past are delivering us this morning and will continue to do so. And that by your good grace, we will be brought safely into, your, into eternal relationship with you. Father, prepare us for that. Let us put away the idols and the sin that so easily entangles us. And as we do so, devote ourselves more deeply in worship to you. And as we devote ourselves more deeply in worship to you, we believe that you'll reveal further sin for us to, to turn from, repent from, and, and that will draw us even deeper into worship with you. Father, we rejoice in that. We pray by your good pleasure you would restore and continue to restore us. We pray this in your son Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.